are listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Hello, we're the Coopers. I'm Stephen, and this is my wife, Laura. And I'm Joel. And this is Annie. Today's scripture reading is James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the world of the Lord. You've probably heard of the, the mercy rule. Uh, I'm not referring to like the 50-point rule in basketball where you know, one team gets more than 50 points up, the game's over, or the 10-run rule in baseball. I'm referring to the, the mercy rule the way my brothers and I used it when we were younger. I've got four younger brothers, and most of our free time was spent roughhousing, uh, wrestling each other, tying each other up with rope to see if we could get out, um, competing in jumping off of things and knocking things over, you know, all of that stuff. And mostly we spent, uh, well, I should say, essentially everything we did was to exert physical dominance over each other. And you may not be able to tell by looking at me, but I often lost those competitions. So I relied heavily on the one inviolable rule of, rough, of roughhousing in our household, which was the mercy rule. If you pled mercy, that meant the person who had you in a headlock had to let you go when you asked for it, if you could get the words out. Because if they didn't stop, then sometime in the future when they found themselves physically dominated by you, rare but possible, then you didn't have to show them mercy when they asked for it. It's always in your best interest to show mercy, otherwise you may not get it when you need it. At least that was the rule for us boys growing up. I, I thought when I became an adult that that would not be the way uh, that the adult world worked, and then I found out I was wrong. Most of our relationships are built off of the same mercy rule principle. They boil down to, how about... You give me what I want when I want it, and that way you'll know that when you want something, I'll give it to you when you want it. 
right? We give our bosses work and they give us money. We give our friends and our relatives uh, a sense of friendship, belonging, love, and they give us the same thing in return. We give our, our kids approval and love when they give us obedience and respect. We give God worship when he gives us a comfortable life. It's the mercy rule. I'll do this for you if you'll do it for me at some point in the future. But is that really what we want out of our relationships? For all of our relationships to work on this quid pro quo, tit for tat, reciprocal foundation, I don't think it's what we want. We want actual mercy, true mercy, grace, love to rule over our relationships. In today's passage, you just heard read, James asks a similar question. First, in a rhetorical sense, he says, don't you know that if you don't show mercy, then you may not get mercy when you ask for it? But then he takes the question a step further. He says, don't you know that the way of Jesus is so much better than the mercy rule? Don't you know that because of Jesus, true mercy rules over your relationships? Mercy rules your relationships when you're being ruled by Jesus' mercy for you. So if you haven't turned there yet, turn to James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. I'm on page 10 if you've got one of these journals. We're going to walk through these verses together so I can show you what I mean when I say mercy rules your relationships. Pick up in chapter 2, verse 1. James is applying his previous comments, especially be doers of the word, doers of the message implanted within you, not just or not merely hearers only. He's applying that word to relationships within the church, within the body of believers. So he starts out verse 2, my brothers, brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He goes on to give a picture. His critique here is pointed enough that we know he's referring to specific situations, probably a pattern of situations present in the early churches, one that's very understandable. New leaders of new churches were thrilled when rich and powerful people began showing up to explore the claims of Jesus. But in making the rich feel welcome, they were discriminating against the poor. Look at the verse again, the the key part of it here. Show no partiality as you hold the faith, faith in our Lord Jesus. I want to dial in on that word partiality. It's a combination of Greek words that only ever shows up in Christian writings. Scholars think it was invented by Christians to communicate the Jewish idea that God doesn't look on the outward appearance. He looks on the heart that God is no respecter of persons. The the Greek words that are smashed together to form this word partiality, they literally mean elevating the face, lifting the face. In, In other words, it's a way of saying like, hey, when you look at someone and you judge their argument, or you're trying to understand who they are and and what they're about and all of that, when you elevate the face, the outer appearance to be the key and only relevant data point, in determining if they're worthy of your love and your attention, your care, then you're showing partiality or prejudice or discrimination. 
James gives us a quick word picture to describe what he's referring to in verses 2 and 3. You know, a rich person shows up in a church service, they're given preferential treatments. A poor person walks in right behind him and is treated rudely and harshly. Reading this reminded me of a, of a church my wife and I visited when I was interviewing for pastor positions. Uh, they were showing us their facility, which was pretty nice, and then showed us a special side room where a certain national politician could attend the services without having to mingle with the hoi polloi. As if that weren't bad enough, there were snacks in that room. <laughs> I know, right? I want snacks when I walk in. I, I don't know if they saw the shocked looks on our faces, but they never called us back. When, when James says here in verse 1, show no partiality, He's using a, vo a form of the word that implies that this has been going on for a while. It's stop showing partiality. Stop discriminating in your services. Stop showing prejudice in this way based on people's appearances. Even if it's for a good reason, you want the politician to be able to worship without being distracted by the duties of their office. You want the rich person to feel like, you know, maybe the claims of Jesus are something I should consider. And, and you certainly don't want any of them to think that you think that they're no better than a poor, poorly dressed, dirty person, right? Even if it's for a good reason, stop showing partiality. You know that's not the gospel. So stop. It's, it's not just wrong James says, it's utterly incompatible with faith in Jesus. When verse 1 says, show no partiality as you hold the faith, the phrase as you hold is a way of saying you cannot both hold on to faith in Jesus and favoritism on, out, on external uh, appearances. You can't hold on to both at the same time. They don't go together. It'd be like trying to build something out of Legos and screws. You can't build anything without very much damaging one or both of those things. You cannot hold together faith in Jesus and favoritism at the same time. So, he's saying stop giving love based on someone's appearances, based on when you think you're going to get something back from it. You might ask why. Well, it's because, and he's driving us towards this point, mercy rules your relationships, not a cost-benefit analysis, not awe at a person's status or wealth, not snap incorrect judgments based on their external appearances. Mercy is supposed to rule in your relationships. Now, what if mercy ruled in our relationships? What would mercy do then when we're tempted to make value judgments based on someone's external appearance? Whether it's their dress, their apparent wealth, their social status, their gender, the, the color of their skin, the accent with which they speak, the size and the shape of their body, their age, their behavior. What would happen in our relationships and in our church if, if mercy ruled over our relationships? Because in this, this very first verse, that word partiality is plural. 
It's more like show no partialities. And then James gives one example out of many. There are a lot of different ways to prejudge people based on their appearances. And James says all of them are incompatible with faith in Christ because God seems to delight to shower His grace on those whom the world has discarded. Maybe even on those whom the church has discarded. So if we were a people for whom mercy ruled over our relationships, if mercy ruled our relationships, would we not show the same special concern and care that God does for the poor and the helpless? That's what James goes on to try to convince us of, to to describe. And he's he's a wise pastor. James knows what's going on in the hearts of his people. He knows they're capitulating to the rich because, like any of us, you want the feeling of legitimacy, of value that comes when people of a higher social status take an interest in what you're doing and seem to think that what you are providing is valuable. So, James gets at this. He asks a a series of rhetorical questions beginning in verse 5. Listen, my my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? She's promised to those who love him. But you've dishonored the, the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not, are the rich not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? In other words, he's saying, look at reality. The, the rich around you are, in general, the ones who are ridiculing you for your faith. The rich, in general, are the ones around you who are dragging you, like literally dragging you into court in order to take advantage of you. Not only that, but God is actively choosing the poor over the rich. Why are you choosing the rich over the poor? If God's honoring the poor over the rich, why are you honoring the rich over the poor? Now, a side note. It's important to understand that James is not idealizing poverty. He is not saying that if you are poor, you are automatically accepted by God, or that if you're poor, then that that means you will automatically come to faith in Jesus. Nor is James utterly vilifying wealth. Wealth does not preclude someone from coming to faith in Jesus, but the early church was largely made up of those who who were on the poorer end of the social spectrum, those without status or dignity or power or wealth. And so we wonder, well, why would these early church leaders privilege the rich over the poor? Probably for the same reasons that you and I do. For the same reasons that we go to a concert and then line up to take a selfie with the musicians if we can. We want to bask in their reflected glory. Maybe some of it will, you know, stick. People will be able to tell. For the same reason that we freak out when some particular influencer retweets us or likes something that we post because they noticed me. They thought that what I had to say was smart or funny or profound or valuable. It's the same reason we hang pictures on the walls of our offices, (coughs) pictures of us shaking hands with the senator, the governor, the president. 
We want people who come into our office to know that we're the kind of people who deserve to be next to the kind of people that are on the wall. So why would these early church leaders privilege the rich over the poor for, for the same reason that you and I shy away from people who don't look like us when we're in the grocery store trying to pick a line at the BMV or decide whether or not we're going we're gonna to wrestle with the person who speaks English as their fourth language at the customer service desk? Because our hearts, autom we automatically categorize people into groups of not like me and like me. Like me equals safe. Not like me equals suspect. Like me, but better? Now, that's the best group of all. Because if you can find that group and cozy up to it and become part of it, maybe even get yourself into that group. James pushes back on all of that. He says, don't you know God has chosen you. And it wasn't because you were in some high social status or had wealth or power or dignity. He's chosen you. So what, what good is the semi-approving glance of a local minor celebrity when the God of the universe, the Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, of true glory, is here in your service? When He's chosen you, He's saying, is catering after the approval of some minorly glorious dignitary really worth shaming and oppressing and dishonoring the poor? Especially when in that act you're making it harder for that rich person to come to Jesus? So st stop. Mercy is supposed to rule over your relationships. Mercy toward all. James isn't telling us to treat rich people poorly. He says, but don't, don't treat them any better than anyone else. Don't elevate anyone over anyone else. Treat everyone equally just as Jesus has treated you. Because he's still driving us towards this point, mercy rules your relationships, not recognition-seeking, not glory-basking, not fame-borrowing. Mercy rules your relationships. Of course, if mercy is supposed to rule our relationships, then what do we do when we discover that it hasn't? That we've been prejudging people or that some specific case in which we've prejudged someone, treated one person better than another based solely on their external appearance. Well, notice what James does. He doesn't condemn his readers. He doesn't cut them off from the community of faith. He doesn't excommunicate them or shame them or judge them for the actions. He calls them to account, calls them to repentance within the community of mutual love and support that is the church. Now, I know this because of a very interesting juxtaposition of terms at the end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5. End of verse 4, he calls them judges with evil thoughts. And in verse 5 says, so listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Judges with evil thoughts and beloved brothers and sisters. Do you know anyone else who can hold both of those categories together in the same person? When so many of us 
are so good at doing one or the other. We either fully accept beloved brother and sister while confronting nothing of the wrong, or we fully confront the wrong, you wicked, evil, judgy person, I'm judging you, judgy person, without accepting the beloved brother or sister that is the other person. See, truth is easy. Even love is easy. But truth in love or loving truth requires mercy to rule our relationships. Now, if all of that hypothetical or maybe categorical wasn't enough, James gets frighteningly practical. Verses 8 through 13, summarize it. He's essentially saying, look, here's the problem with this partiality, this prejudice and discrimination. He says, when you commit it, you are showing that you'd rather have your actions judged under the old law, the law that had no mercy for the merciless. Why are you putting yourself back under this old law when the law that brings freedom is available to you in Jesus? Look at verse 8. He says, if you, if you really follow the royal law according to the Scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, then you're doing well. And any Jewish reader would have understood what, what James meant by that. The, the part of the royal law or the law of the king that governs our interactions with one another, which is the category within which James is operating right now, is summed up in this quote from Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the one law that James needs to quote to prove that their partiality is out of bounds. No one can read the description of verses 2 and 3 and be like, oh yeah, that's definitely loving people like myself. If I were rich, I'd want to be treated well. If I were poor, I'd want to be treated like a dog. Of course. No. See, actually what's happening here is that he's saying, look, these ushers or whoever is showing people to their seats are essentially, they're not loving the rich, they're using the rich to feel better about themselves. Look who's here. They're not loving the poor, they're using the poor to feel better about themselves. You sit over there. They're not loving the rich or the poor, they're loving themselves. So James continues his his argument in verse 9, but if you show partiality, right, verse 8 was already like a mic drop. This is not allowed. But 9, if you show partiality, you're committing sin. You're convicted by the law as transgressors. You're violating the law of the king, which sums up all the other laws under the old system. And he goes on to say, you know how it works. Hypothetically, you could keep all of them, but if you broke just one, murder, adultery, if you broke just one law, you'd be guilty of breaking the whole thing. Now, that's because in James' view, the, the law of the Old Testament is not sort of the gathered together amalgamation of various commands at various times. It is one law from one law giver. So, God doesn't come to us and say, well, it appears to me that you have broken uh, Article 6, Paragraph 5, Subsection C.3. No, it's more like when you're parents give you a list of chores. Clean your room, make your bed, vacuum the floor, dust your dresser. If you do all of it, but you don't dust the dresser, 
well, yeah, you've, you've broken one command out of four, but also your chores aren't done. As a whole, you've disobeyed the one voice of the one chore giver. So James is saying, it works the same way with the law. If you can keep every command but break just one, and it makes you guilty of breaking the whole law as a whole, disobeying the one voice of the one law giver. So then he asks another rhetorical question. So if you are a transgressor, if you're a lawbreaker, which we all are, then how do you want to be judged? How do you want to be judged? That's the question of verses 12 and 13. Do you want to be judged as someone under the old law? The law that requires perfect obedience? The law where if you expect love, you have to give perfect love first? Where if you want to expect grace, you have to give perfect grace first? Where if you want mercy, you have to give perfect mercy First, is that the law that you want to be judged under, or do you want to be judged under the, the, the new law, the law of liberty, the law that brings freedom, the law as lived out by, interpreted by, and fulfilled by Jesus? James is saying, look, here, here's the deal. When you show favoritism, when you discriminate, when you prejudge someone's worth and how much they deserve your love and attention simply by the way they look, just what you can see on the externals, you show you're still living under that old way of thinking, that old law that says this is all one big exchange. I give God obedience, He gives me blessing. You're still operating under the mercy rule. I'll treat you well if you treat me well. But Jesus took that old system and completely transformed it, fulfilled it, kept it perfectly, showing perfect love, perfect grace, perfect mercy, and then got judgment so that you and I could get the mercy and the grace and the love that we didn't deserve that He did. That's why the law of liberty, it, it says, here's a summary of the law of liberty, mercy triumphs over judgment. Here's the problem with the, the mercy rule that my brothers and I kept. It wasn't ever actually mercy. It was insurance. Right? It was an investment against future danger. Give a little bit of mercy now, and you can be sure that in the future it'll, it'll pay off to your benefit. That's not mercy. Mercy is always an undeserved gift. Grace and mercy go hand in hand. We usually say grace is when you don't deserve something good, but you get it anyway. Mercy is when you do deserve something negative, but you don't get it. It's when you, you do deserve judgment for law-breaking. It's when you do deserve punishment for rebellion, but you don't get it. The person who is justified in giving that punishment instead withholds it and absorbs it into themselves. We deserve judgment, but we're given mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. Why? Well, because mercy rules your relationship with God. 
Mercy rules your relationship with God, and if mercy rules your relationship with God, then it should also rule our relationships with each other. It changes the way that we interact with and judge and prejudge others. If I can say it this way, mercy is the best kind of prejudice. Mercy is the best kind of prejudice because mercy prejudges everyone as valuable, as incredibly deserving of the grace and the love and the care that you can show. Everyone. Everyone. Even the person on the other end of the political spectrum from you. Even the person who you think works too hard and neglects the important things, or the person you think doesn't work hard enough and neglects their responsibilities. The person of the other gender, the person of the other skin tone color, the person of the other accent, the person who is too old to be relevant anymore, which is a moving target for all of us. It's roughly our parents' age, right? The person who's too young to know what they're talking about. Again, a moving target. It's usually five to ten years younger than us. The person who isn't as fiscally responsible as you. The person who has a different body shape than you. The person whose brain doesn't work the same way that yours does. The person whose body isn't able to do what your body is able to do. There are so many different ways that we can judge and prejudge. And James says, yeah, prejudge everyone under the banner of mercy that everyone deserves your special care, your love, your attention. See, mercy assumes everyone is valuable in God's sight. Everyone is worthy of love. Everyone deserves it from me, from you, from, from all of us. So I said in the beginning, James, in these 13 verses, is applying to a new situation. He's applying his kind of key verse of 122, be doers of the word, doers of the message, not hearers only. So that means we come back to a test that essentially says, how would you know if that message that has saved you is now working itself out through you? Because you would have already internalized the mercy you've been shown by God, that you've received from God, welcomed it, let it transform you, and then begun to show that same mercy in increasing and increasing degrees to people around you, especially people that your kind of people deem as not worthy of that kind of care and attention. James is saying, you're, you're a doer of the word if mercy rules your relationships. Now, listen, I know every single one of us, uh, we want to belong. It's something we were designed for. We were made to belong somewhere. We want full acceptance, but most of us only know how to get it by excluding others. The best way to be in is to force everyone else out, right? We serve a God who says, but I've chosen you. I've chosen you. You're in you are already in. Now, from that position of being in, go out. 
and invite others in, bring others in too. In John 17, Jesus prayed that the unity of the church, unity in the church, that, that all who are invited in would be and feel included. He prayed for this unity and for the church to be one so that the world would believe that God had sent him. Which means when we exercise the kind of partialities that James is warning against here, we are actively working against the message we're speaking out loud. We're actively working against the message that in Jesus there is no rich or poor. There is no Jew or Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. There is only one. All are one in Christ. We can't just say it. We have to do it. We have to let God's mercy rule over us so that mercy rules our relationships. Especially in this church where we are called by his name. Let's pray. Father, this work that you've given us to do is some of the most incredibly difficult work you will call us to. It strikes right at the core of our survival instincts, right at the basis of our need to be welcomed, belong, to know that, there are, that someone's going to take care of us. So, Father, we recognize and we plead that if we are to become a people who show no partiality, it will only be because of an act of your grace. So, Father, as your grace and your mercy transform us, let it transform our relationships and let us be and be known as people for whom mercy rules. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.